You know that's the sound of another sale on your online Shopify store. But did you know Shopify powers selling in person too? That's right. Shopify is the sound of selling everywhere. Online, in store, on social media, and beyond. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in-line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's POS Go mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash crimes, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash crimes to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash crimes. Voices for Justice is a podcast that uses adult language and discusses sensitive and potentially triggering topics, including violence, abuse, and murder. This podcast may not be appropriate for younger audiences. All parties are innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. Some names have been changed or omitted per their request or for safety purposes. Listener discretion is advised. My name is Sarah Turney, and this is Voices for Justice. Today, I am discussing the case of 20-year-old Amber Tuckero. In 2010, Amber took a trip to Edmonton in Alberta, Canada, with her son and a friend. On the last night of their trip, she got a ride from a stranger and was never seen again. Two years later, the police released audio of what is believed to be Amber's last phone call, and they asked the public for help. After a lot of missteps by the police, a public apology, and a slew of people coming forward to claim that they know who harmed Amber, the case remains unsolved. I wanted to cover Amber's case because of that audio. Honestly, it's haunted me from the first time I heard it years ago. These kinds of cases where there's video, photo, or audio evidence that just needs to be matched up with the right person honestly drive me crazy. It feels like we are so close to finding a resolution if we can just get this information to the right people. So here's hoping we can do that. This is the case of Amber Tuckero. This episode of Voices for Justice is brought to you by June's Journey. I'm pretty sure everyone here loves a good mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey. You get to step into the role of June Parker and search for hidden clues to uncover the mystery of her sister's murder. You engage your observation skills to quickly uncover key pieces of information that lead to chapters of mystery, danger, and romance. So what does that mean? Well, June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game. Essentially, you find hidden clues and uncover this mystery. But it's also more than that. You can customize your own luxurious estate island, you can join a detective club, and put your skills to the test in a detective league. 
I like that you can play totally alone, or if you want to play with other people, you can do that too. I find myself playing June's Journey in little breaks during the day, or most frequently at night before I go to bed. Whether you're craving a good mystery or just looking for an escape, I really do recommend June's Journey. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Amber Alyssa Tuckerow was born on January 3, 1990, in Alberta, Canada. She was a member of the Mickey Cree Nation. There isn't a lot of information out there about Amber's biological parents. What we do know is that a cousin of one of her parents, Vivian Tuckerow, adopted Amber shortly after she was born. Vivian was the mother of four boys. So she was overjoyed to adopt Amber and finally have the baby girl she always wanted. One of her older brothers, Billy Joe, remembers the day that Amber came home vividly. He even cut a camping trip with one of his friends short so he could come see her at 3.15 in the morning when his mom picked her up. Vivian describes Amber as kind, but also a tough girl who could take care of herself. Amber loved to sing and dance. She would tell her mom that someday she would be on posters and billboards because of these talents. Though Vivian jokingly would tell the media that Amber was not very good at either singing or dancing. Unfortunately, Amber would eventually be featured on many posters and billboards, just not for the reasons she dreamed of. Jumping ahead, 20-year-old Amber was living with her mother and her 14-year-old son, Jacob, in Fort McMurray in Leduc County. Fort McMurray has been described as a small town, having around 61,000 residents at this time. From what I could find, the town is made up of a lot of oil workers and farmers. It's also known for its amazing view of the northern lights, hunting, and fishing. Those who knew Amber said that she was incredibly devoted to her son and a great mother. Amber being away from her son Jacob would be a major indication that something was wrong in the days to come. With Fort McMurray being on the smaller side, Amber and her friend Evangeline decided that they would fly with baby Jacob to the city of Edmonton to visit their local mall and do some shopping. Amber's mother Vivian remembers asking Amber to leave Jacob with her, but Amber assured her mother it was just two sleeps. They'd be back before she knew it. Before I go into the details of this trip, let's take a moment and talk about this friend, Evangeline. This was apparently a very new friend, if not even just an acquaintance that she'd met just a few weeks prior. Now, in my research, I came across a few blogs that state that Amber met Evangeline at a place called the Unity House. The Unity House offers a variety of services, including housing, educational courses, and living assistance but I wasn't able to find any official news sources to confirm this information. And after watching every video I could find of Amber's mother Vivian speaking about her case, I never heard this come up. So I'd take this with a grain of salt. Typically, if I can't find an official source for something, I leave it out of the episode. I know all too well how mystery facts can tend to pop up in these cases. The reason I'm mentioning it is because we know virtually nothing about this woman named Evangeline. In fact, in most articles, she's typically referred to as just a female friend. It wasn't until I watched an episode of Still Missing from Investigation Discovery that I even heard the name Evangeline mentioned. 
so I really tried to scrape together as much information as possible about this woman. Because in the end, she leaves us with more questions than answers. Nonetheless, at 6.30am on Tuesday, August 17th, 2010, Amber, Jacob, and Evangeline flew from Fort McMurray to the Edmonton International Airport. They stayed at the Nisku Place Motel. This was very close to the airport, and actually about 30 minutes outside of the city of Edmonton. Because it was in this highly trafficked, kind of transient area, there were a lot of truckers and oil workers that would pass through. Unfortunately, not much is known about this first day that they arrived in Edmonton. The flight was roughly one hour, possibly more if they had any layovers. But considering that the flight left at 6.30 in the morning, I would assume that the three arrived at the Edmonton International Airport with plenty of time to do something. But of course, it is possible that they all just hung out in the motel room that day. On the second day of their trip, Wednesday, August 18th, the three traveled 30 minutes to the West Edmonton Mall to do their planned shopping. It's unknown how they got there and back. They didn't rent a car, so it's possible that they found a ride or used public transportation. But after a long day in the city, they do make it back to the motel. At some point that day, Amber decides she wants to go back to the city that evening by herself. Evangeline agrees to watch Jacob, and around 7.30pm, Amber goes out to the main road to try to find a ride. One of the largest mysteries in this case is why Amber decided to go into the city by herself. Maybe she'd met someone in the city that day. They exchanged numbers, and after going back to the motel to maybe freshen up, she decided to go meet up with this person. It's also been suggested that she could have been going to visit her brother, who was incarcerated at the Edmund Remand Center at this time. From the mall, it would have been about a 20-minute drive to see her brother, or about a 40-minute drive from the motel. According to the visitation parameters on their website today, in-person visitation isn't allowed. However, I'm not sure if that's just due to current COVID guidelines. The website does state that the visitation center is open seven days a week until 9 p.m. So it is possible that if visitation was allowed, Amber could have been going to see her brother. But having visited a few jails and prisons myself, I've never seen one that would allow physical visitation that late. And I've never found a statement from Amber's brother to confirm this. Ultimately, we don't know why Amber wanted to go into Edmonton that night, but she is successful in finding a ride. That night, Vivian can't get a hold of Amber, which is extremely unusual. So she calls Evangeline, who tells her that Amber and Jacob are sleeping. Vivian tells her to have Amber call her as soon as she wakes up. The next day, Vivian gets a text from Evangeline asking if she was Jacob's grandmother. Vivian says she knew immediately that something was wrong. Evangeline goes on to tell her that Amber left Jacob in the motel room with her in the middle of the night. This obviously isn't consistent with what we know now. In no stretch of the imagination do I think anyone would consider 7.30pm the middle of the night. It sounds to me like Evangeline might have been covering for Amber the night before, when she told Vivian that Amber and Jacob were sleeping possibly trying to shield Amber from any criticism she would get for leaving Jacob alone with Evangeline for the night. But this is just speculation, which is pretty much all we have when it comes to Evangeline and why she said what she said to Vivian. 
Vivian does immediately report Amber missing to the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, which I will call the RCMP from here on out. The RCMP tell Vivian that Amber is probably just out partying, and she'll call soon. They tell her that at the 24-hour mark, they'll start looking into it. Vivian was super insistent that something was wrong, and begged for them to get on this right away. But it wouldn't be until the next day, August 20th, that the RCMP officially lists Amber as a missing person. Unfortunately, this didn't seem to do much. Despite this official listing, no one would be interviewed for quite some time. And although the RCMP would allude to some searches about Amber in the future, I wasn't able to find any detailed information about these. But I think it's safe to say that this definitely wasn't a situation in which all resources were utilized to find her. And as we will learn, there would be a large amount of missteps in Amber's case. But Vivian was persistent and called the RCMP every single day. She would call and give them tips that she'd heard and, of course, ask for information. Vivian also made the trip to Nisku and Edmonton herself to put up flyers of Amber and ask around. Just a few weeks after Amber went missing, Vivian calls the RCMP for an update, and she's told that Amber has been removed from their missing persons database. Vivian is floored. She, of course, asks if they've located Amber. The officer replies that no, they hadn't. He explains that they'd received a tip from a gas station attendant that says he saw Amber in Edmonton, and that's why she was removed from the database. The RCMP made no contact to confirm that that actually was Amber. Vivian was understandably very upset, because Amber was absolutely still missing. She basically begs them to put her back in the database, and they refuse. Not long after, the RCMP would add insult to injury by telling the public that they didn't believe Amber was in any danger, or that foul play was involved. After a month of fighting with the RCMP, Amber is finally put back in their missing persons database. But this means for an entire month, they were doing nothing to find Amber Tuckero. This is very upsetting because there was good reason to believe that Amber could have been just one of the reported 562 missing or murdered Indigenous women in Canada at this time. Though Muriel Stanley Venn of the Institute for the Advancement of Aboriginal Women said that the real figure is most likely in the thousands. The RCMP knew that Indigenous women were more likely to be victims of foul play than other demographics. At this point, it was essentially an epidemic, as it continues to be today. But for whatever reason, there was a complete and total lack of urgency in her case. In July 2011, the RCMP would again tell the Edmonton Post that Amber was not involved in a high-risk lifestyle, and that they had no reason to believe that she was the victim of a homicide. Which is extremely confusing to me considering what we learn the next year. In 2012, Amber's family learns that there is a recording of a 17-minute phone call between Amber and her incarcerated brother after she disappeared. In this call, Amber is clearly in the vehicle of an unidentified man, presumably the same man that picked her up from the motel. On August 28, 2012, the RCMP's Project CARE investigators release one minute of this phone call. 
this clip is a mash of five different segments, so it will jump around a bit. But this is what they release. Where are we by? We're just heading south of uh, Beaumont, or north of Beaumont. We're heading north of Beaumont. Yo, where are we going? No, this is a... Are you fucking kidding me? You better not take, you better not take me anywhere I don't want to go. I want to go into the city. Okay. Yo, we're not going in the city, are we? No, we're not. Then where the fuck are these roads going to? 50th Street. 50th Street. Are you sure? Absolutely. Yo, where are we going? 50th Street. 50th Street? 50th Street. I know the end of the call can be difficult to hear. They're basically discussing that they're now on a gravel road before the call disconnects. Now, let's talk about this call. First, why did it take so long to get this recording? And why didn't the family know about it for over a year? Again, this is a call between Amber and her incarcerated brother. The recording comes from a recorded line in the facility. I have to imagine that the brother told his family about this call and they communicated about Amber's disappearance. I mean, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe the brother was estranged from the rest of the family and didn't know what to think of the call. But in my mind, the most likely scenario is that this call freaked out Amber's brother. He probably told his family, if not the police, about the call. So if the RCMP knew about this strange call, where at the very least, we know that Amber was confused about where she was going with this man, why for almost a year after she went missing did they tell the public that there was no reason to believe that she was met with foul play? Last but not least, why did it take so long to release this call? This reminds me so much of the Jody Lucornu case that I covered earlier this year, with them waiting years to release the picture of the suspect's car. Although the RCMP states that the man in the call is just a person of interest, he obviously holds a huge piece to this puzzle. You'd think that they'd release it much sooner in hopes that someone would recognize the voice and come forward. Kind of like the video evidence made public in the murders of Abigail Williams and Liberty German. I just don't understand what the benefit of sitting on this piece of information was. They had almost nothing to go on. Nothing to share with the public. This is now one of the largest leads in Amber's case. I will never understand this delay. Again, this is just an area where I have a lot of questions. But either way, authorities believe that due to what was said in the call, the person driving Amber was most likely not going toward Edmonton like she'd requested, but instead driving south and east of Nisku into a very rural part of Leduc County. Vivian Tuckerow has heard all 17 minutes of this phone call. Though she hasn't released any details about what else was said, she did give a statement to CBC News about Amber's demeanor on the call. My baby sounds so scared. And Amber was like um, a tough girl. She can take care of herself, you know. 
And she won't just let anybody do anything to her. Without a fight or whatever. And I get nightmares. I have all these awful thoughts of what could have, you know, what happened to her. Ultimately, this call would garner a ton of new leads for the RCMP. And the website hosting the call received over 8,000 hits in the first 24 hours. People were coming out of the woodwork from all over the place to say that they knew the man in the audio. That it was their uncle, their brother, their cousin, their boyfriend, whatever. But just a few days later, before they could probably even properly investigate any of these leads another vital discovery would be made. On September 1st, 2012, a group of people riding horses on a ranch property near Leduc discover Amber's skull. The group goes right to the owner of the property to report this, and the owner promptly calls the RCMP. The same day, the RCMP calls Amber's family to inform them that the skull and other remains were Amber's. Unfortunately, it appears that her remains had been there for quite some time, as officials are unable to determine her cause of death. She was only identified through dental records. Three days later, on September 4th, a press conference was held to announce this discovery. This is uh, Staff Sergeant Gerard McNeil, that's G-E-R-A-R-D-M-A-C-N-E-I-L. I'm the unit commander at CARE. Uh, I bring you here today, and I thank you very much for coming. Uh, the RCMP, RCMP confirmed today the human remains found on a rural property near the Duke, Alberta, on Saturday, September 1st, 2012, are those of Amber Abyssinia, who has been the subject of an RCMP missing person investigation since her disappearance in August 2010. A group of recreational horseback riders came upon what they believed to be a human skull and immediately contacted the RCMP at Leduc. Over the weekend, the remains were identified through dental records, and with the assistance of the Edmonton Medical Examiner's Office and RCMP Forensic Identification Services, care investigators became involved. We consider the circumstances surrounding Amber Tuckerell's death to be suspicious. A ground search of the area where her remains were found is underway, and is expected to be completed within 48 hours. The care investigation into Amber Tuckerell's disappearance continues. This is very sad news for the Tuckerell family, and our thoughts are with them. This discovery brings us closer to finding out what happened to Amber. Amber Tuckerell, a resident of Fort McMurray, Alberta, was visiting the Edmonton... This conference is about six minutes in total, but to be honest, it was so windy that day, the audio is kind of painful to listen to. So I'm just going to summarize the rest for you. The area is described as being rural and wooded noting that it is a typical Alberta landscape, where farm was kind of carved out around these wooded areas. We also learn that there is no connection between the release of the phone call and the discovery of Amber's remains. A reporter asks if they'd searched the area for Amber previously, and they're met with a pretty PC answer, saying that they have done searches in Leduc County previously, but they were unable to say exactly which areas were searched. We do learn that there were currently 40 officials on the scene looking for possible evidence. Though, in the end, it's still unknown if any physical evidence outside of Amber's remains were ever found. Authorities would later state that due to the location where Amber was found, they do believe the perpetrator is most likely local to the area. 
it was actually about a 15 minute walk through this farmer's field to get to the location, so it does seem unlikely that someone would just stumble upon it. This area was about a 20 minute drive from the Nisku Place Motel. Now, if you remember, the total length of Amber's phone call with her brother was 17 minutes. So I think it's safe to say that after this discovery, we can conclude that she was on the phone with her brother for most of that car ride. Which still begs the question, who called who? Did Amber call her brother or some type of voicemail system because she felt uncomfortable? Or did her brother happen to call her at just the right time? According to the Edmonton Remand Center website, they don't accept incoming calls to inmates today, as most facilities don't in my experience. It's just another piece to this puzzle that I'm honestly really curious about. After Amber's remains were found, people began to compare her murder to others in the area. And pretty soon, rumors began to swirl that this might be the work of a serial killer. Between the years 2002 and 2004, the remains of two other women were found in the same five-mile radius. 28-year-old Edna Bernard was found the day after she went missing in another farmer's field in 2002. Her fingers were broken, and she'd been strangled to death. 40-year-old Katie Sylvia Ballantyne was found just outside of Leduc County, also in 2002. Jumping ahead just a bit, this theory of a possible serial killer was strengthened even more when two women's remains were found on a rural property within that same five-mile radius in 2015. These women were 27-year-old Corey Renee Ottenbright and 32-year-old Dolores Dawn Brower. It's also important to note that like Amber, three of these four other women were Native American. Although it is believed that these other women led a higher-risk lifestyle than Amber, it's hard to ignore this theory. At the very least, it seems incredibly likely that Dolores Dawn Brower and Corey Renee Ottenbright were killed by the same person since they were found on the same property. Now, there have been a few people discussed as possibly being the serial killer behind these murders. None have been named an official suspect in Amber's case by the RCMP or even a person of interest. After looking at a few, there are definitely some that feel creepy and suspicious in their own ways. But I couldn't find any definitive link to Amber to feel comfortable enough naming them in this episode. A few more years would go by without much progress in Amber's case. Frustrated by this lack of progress, and with many things that happened in the investigation, Vivian Tuckero files a complaint to the Civilian Review and Complaints Commission for the RCMP on March 24th, 2014. Although the review of this complaint was supposed to take no longer than 18 months, Vivian and her family would wait four years to finally hear back from them. On August 27th, 2018, the commission came back with a 120-page report detailing 24 findings and 17 recommendations for improvement. Now, only 10 pages of this report have been released by the Tuckerow family, but in those 10 pages, we learn a lot. Now, believe it or not, I'm not going to read all 10 pages verbatim. A lot of it is actually pretty repetitive, so I'm just going to read what I found to be the most relevant or interesting, starting with some of the findings. Please keep in mind that the names of the officers have been redacted. Finding number two. 
Constable Blank did not take reasonable steps to be satisfied that Miss Tuckerow was safe prior to removing the missing person entry relative to Miss Tuckerow from CPIC. Finding number three. Constable Blank spoke with a supervisor before removing Miss Tuckerow from CPIC as a missing person. Finding number four. It was unreasonable for Constable Blank to delay reinstating Miss Tuckerow's status as missing in CPIC until December 23, 2010. Finding number five. The information released to the media to the effect that the RCMP had no reason to believe that Miss Tuckerow was in any danger and that her general whereabouts were known was inaccurate and had the effect of minimizing the significance of Miss Tuckerow's missing person case at that time. Finding number seven. It was unreasonable for Constable Blank to fail to seize Miss Tuckerow's suitcase and its contents from the motel in a timely manner. Contrary to basic investigative techniques relating to the collection of potential physical evidence, leaving the evidence vulnerable to contamination and or to being lost or destroyed. Finding number eight. Constable Blank as acting watch commander failed to provide reasonable supervisory oversight by not instructing Constable Blank to seize Miss Tuckerow's suitcase and its contents from the motel. Finding number 10. Corporal Blank's mishandling of Miss Tuckerow's suitcase and its contents resulted in members of the Leduc detachment accidentally destroying these items. Finding number 13. Constable Blank as acting watch commander failed to ensure that steps were taken to locate and interview Miss Blank. Now, the next few actually have to do with the same subject. It's all about failing to interview this person. Finding number 17. The record does not support the allegation of conscious racial bias of any members during the conduct of the missing person investigation. Finding number 18. Constable Blank, Constable Blank, Corporal Blank, and Leduc Detachment Senior Command failed to reasonably consider the heightened risk posed by Mrs. Blank's lifestyle, which resulted in poor investigative practices. Finding number 19. The record does not support the allegation of unconscious racial bias of any members during the conduct of the missing person investigation. Finding number 20. Investigators of the Leduc Detachment failed to comply with investigative procedures prescribed by policy. Finding number 21. During the first four months of the missing person investigation, neither Constable Blank while acting as watch commander until early October 2010, nor Corporal Blank upon her arrival on October 4, 2010, reasonably monitored the investigation as required by the missing person's policy. Finding number 24. The missing person investigation conducted by the Leduc detachment was wholly inadequate. Now we're on to recommendations. There's a lot of recommendations about ongoing training, so I'm not going to read them all for you. Recommendation number five. That constables blank and blank will receive operational guidance regarding the importance of interviewing all witnesses thoroughly in a missing person investigation and in particular, interviewing promptly the last known person to have seen the missing person. Recommendation number 11. 
that the RCMP make the use of the National RCMP Missing Persons Intake Form mandatory. Recommendation number 12. That the National RCMP Missing Persons Policy be amended so that the members' roles and responsibilities are modified to require confirmation of the physical descriptors of the missing person with the complainant before completing the CPIC entry. Finally, Recommendation number 17, that the RCMP provide a public apology to Miss Vivian Tuckerow and her family for the mistakes made in the missing person investigation and the inadequate investigation undertaken overall by the Leduc Detachment. So, we obviously learn a lot from this report. Overall, we learn that there was a lack of training or a lack of adherence to this training. We learn that witnesses, presumably Evangeline, wasn't interviewed right away. We learn that Amber's suitcase sat in the motel for months before the RCMP took it for evidence. And we learn that they destroyed the evidence as opposed to returning Amber's belongings to her family. RCMP basically says, sorry, we'll do better in the future. I do think one main thing we can take away from this is the confirmation, the validation, for the Tuckerow family, that the case was inadequately investigated. Now, that recommended apology wouldn't come until the next year in 2019. I'm going to play for you audio of this apology, but I need to explain a bit of what's going on since you can't see the video. Deputy Commissioner Curtis Zablocki issues his recommended apology. Not long after, a woman approaches the table and informs Vivian that the officers are actually out of time because they have another meeting. I want to express my deepest sympathy for your family's loss. Please know that the RCMP remains completely committed to searching for the person responsible for taking Amber from you. I'd like to commend you for the courage to talk about your difficult experiences searching for Amber, your daughter, sister, and mother. As of right now, the apology doesn't mean anything to me because they did it because they were told to. And I think the reason that I'm up here today, Amber's mother, is because I didn't give up. I don't know where I got the strength of, but I'm here. Um, it, it hurts me that Amber gets all the attention today where there's so many of our missing and murdered women. And Amber gets a new poster because the police messed up, does that solve the problem? No. I hope that I help families today, even if one, one family, that I can give them the strength to come forward and not give up like I did. Because you can't. That's your daughter, that's your baby. So to the mothers of the missing and murdered, please, please, find the strength and come forward. And you've been wronged like Amber's case was, come forward. An apology needs to be heartfelt, not just words, you know what I mean? See, look again, they just proved the game. They're just getting up and leaving, next appointment, right? I mean, they're the ones apologizing, but yet they can get up and walk away. What does that say? I don't blame the Tuckeros for not accepting this apology. 
a forced apology never feels as authentic as a natural one. And the Tuckeros have asked for apologies in the past, but it wasn't until they were essentially forced to publicly apologize that they did so. Not that I think that they ever would in any capacity pretty much ever, but I can say that I don't know if I'd accept even a natural apology from the Phoenix Police Department in my sister's case. After all that's happened, after so many years, you can't really apologize this type of thing away especially when there's a repeated pattern of behavior over several years. But at the end of the day, this is the apology the Tuckeros received. A few months after this, the Tuckeros apply to have Amber's body exhumed. They tell the public that they just aren't sure that it's actually Amber, stating that they found it suspicious that they were told the same day that Amber's remains were found that she'd been positively identified. They also say that they think that there are inconsistencies in the dental records. As far as I could find, this request has not yet been approved. I mentioned it briefly earlier in the episode, but the audio of the phone call released sparked a lot of people coming forward to say that they knew who the person in the car was with Amber. Notably, there was a group of women that came forward who said that they were sex workers and often got rides with this man. The RCMP did rule this person out that they pointed to. In 2020, a writer named Dustin McKisson declared in a Facebook post that he knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that the person on that call was his own father. But he would later take the post down, and the RCMP would issue a public statement saying that McKisson accused his father of several murders, many of which were already solved. At the end of the day, every person that has gone to the media with their findings have been individually ruled out by the RCMP. This is usually where I would say this is where Amber's case is today, and I suppose the RCMP might feel like it is. But you guys, the Tuckeros released new information that could help us find Amber less than two months ago on their Facebook page. On July 25th, Amber's mother wrote, quote, Hello everyone, Need some help in contacting the person slash persons who found my daughter Amber's status card in Calling Lake, Alberta, maybe January or February 2013. The card was found in a hockey bag at the Calling Lake Arena and was posted on the bulletin board. Someone recognized Amber's picture and said it's the girl whose remains were found in September 2012 and turned it into the RCMP. How the hell did her ID turn up there five to six months after her remains were found? This info was told to my son and myself in 2020, and not by the police. Had this person not told us, we would have never known about this. I contacted the police who were working on Amber's case, questioning why our family wasn't told about this, and was told they had to go back and check Amber's file. Once again, another fuck-up in my daughter's case. Had they worked on this info, maybe we would have had some kind of answers as to how her ID ended up there. If anyone has any info about Amber's ID found at Calling Lake, Alberta, or any kind of info about Amber, please contact the police or message me. Amber's family needs answers. I will, of course, share the photo of Amber's ID on social media and on my website. But this is brand new, and I really think it could be huge. These days, both Vivian and Paul Tuckerow advocate for Amber as well as all missing and murdered Indigenous women. 
In 2017, Paul testified at the National Inquiry into Murdered and Missing Indigenous Women in Edmonton. It was a three-day event to hear from families of these women. One of the most beautiful things I read about this inquiry is that every hearing was set up with brown paper bags labeled tears for the family to place their tissues in. These bags were later burned so that smoke could rise to the sky. Maybe I'm just sappy, but I think that is just beautiful. This is another family who has turned their tragedy into advocacy, even while Amber's case remains unsolved. To this day, there have been no arrests made for the murder of Amber Tuckerow. If you look at the Justice for Amber Tuckerow Facebook page, and you read Vivian's posts, you can just feel the anger and the pain. Sometimes she even talks directly to Amber. It's just so raw. On September 1st, 2021, just the day before this episode airs, Amber's mother wrote on the page, quote, Nine years ago today, my baby girl's remains were found on a farmer's field. My heart was broken into millions of pieces. And yet still today, it's still broken, never to be whole again. I can't help but feel so much anger and hate towards the person slash persons that took my baby girl's life. Stole Jacob's mom from him. I still have a hard time comprehending, understanding how this kind of effed up shit can happen, and yet the killer still walks free. This has been way too long waiting for him to be caught. There's still no justice for my daughter Amber, and I keep praying and hoping that this POS will be caught. This is hard on my family as we still don't have closure, whatever closure is. I will forever miss and love you, my beautiful angel girl. Now, I'm sorry guys, I really tried to get through that without crying, I said it about 25 times, but as someone who has written posts like this, I feel for this family. How could I not? Which brings me right to our call to action. The importance of the audio we have in Amber's case cannot be overstated, so I'm going to play it for you one more time. Where are we by? We're just heading south of uh, Beaumont, or north of Beaumont. We're heading north of Beaumont. Yo, where are we going? Just... No, this is a... Are you fucking kidding me? You better not take you better not take me anywhere I don't wanna go. I wanna go into the city. Shame. Yo, we're not going into the city, are we? No, we're not. Then where the fuck are these roads going to? Fiftieth Street. Fiftieth Street. Are you sure? Absolutely. Yo, where are we going? Fiftieth Street. Fiftieth Street. We have the voice of the person who, in my opinion, most likely harmed Amber, or at the very least, probably knows who did. So first and foremost, please share this audio. Second, please share the picture of Amber's status card. Finding out who found it could be huge. Amber's son is now 12, and he's taller than his grandmother. He had to grow up without his mother, 
that's something that we can never change. But maybe we can help in finding some answers for him. Amber Tuckrow was 20 years old when she went missing. She had black hair with blonde streaks, brown eyes, weighed 144 pounds, and was 5 feet 6 inches tall. She may have been wearing a purple Bench brand hoodie. Anyone with information related to Amber's disappearance is asked to call the Leduc RCMP Detachment at 780-980-7267 or Crime Stoppers at 1-800-222-8477. But as always, thank you, I love you, and I'll talk to you next time. Voices for Justice is hosted and produced by me, Sarah Turney. For more information about the podcast, to suggest a case, to see resources used for this episode, and to find out more about how to help the cases I discuss, visit VoicesForJusticePodcast.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to rate and review the show in your podcast player. It really does help more people find the podcast and these cases in need of justice.